Our scripture reading this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and goodness, and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let us pray. Father God, we come before your inerrant word, your perfectly holy word. And in these verses, Lord, are depths that cannot be fully appreciated in any one sermon, Lord, but help us to taste and see the goodness of God through the preaching of the word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What a great passage this is for our day and age. There has uh, been a pink elephant in the room in every Bible-believing church uh, throughout our communities and well over now the past year. A lot of cultural debates are bleeding into the church, into our churches at this moment. Are you a masker? Are you not a masker? Are you a singer? Are you not a singer? Are you a meet-in-person church? Or are you a stream-online church? Or maybe both? Are you a sign-up sheet to worship church? Or a non-sign-up sheet to worship church? I mean, if 15 months ago I had said to you, I know a Christian who is a masker, non-singer, streamer, sign-up sheeter. You would think I had been hit in the head with something. But now you're like, oh yeah, I know hundreds of Christians like that. So what a wonderful time for us to see this passage here by Paul of a greater call to unity. But the debates don't stop there. Should churches be judging everything through the lens of skin color? Should people be repenting or receiving something over the amount of melatonin in their skin? Or lack of melatonin in their skin? Because they're either part of a privileged class or an afflicted class. Or should we just avoid these kinds of distinctions? I believe Paul, as we've already seen in the previous chapter, comes out on the side of avoiding these kind of melatonin-based decisions. But still, this is coming, becoming a part of the church's, the broader church's discussion. How about this? Should churches be commenting on marriage practices? On things like sexuality? And or should a church publicly promote or even talk about things like same-sex marriage or transgender lifestyles in the public square or even at pulpits? You know that will offend people? Shouldn't we just stay out of it altogether? 
And as churches begin to form their positions along these current cultural dividing lines, it's going to cause some shifting within the church. And this isn't all that new. It's not new in church history. It happened at the time of the apostles. Even Paul himself, at one time, he splits the ministry uh, from Barnabas and John Mark over differences. But they still have a unity and love. Even in Gold Goshenhoppen's recent history, a little over a decade ago, this very church was in a denomination that continued to go one way socially and culturally and politically, regardless of what the scriptures say. And this church, of course, decided to pull out of that denomination in order to preserve certain boundary markers, to, to find a certain unity in Christ. And so these types of things, and also the speed by which we see these kinds of questions arise and the church has to deal with, begins to cause us to ask, where is unity found? Now, on Thursday morning, a variety of pastors will be here uh, for the second time in a month from a variety of backgrounds. Um, we'll all be gathering. We'll all be fellowshipping with one another. Last time we had, a, we had Pentecostals. We had Eastern Orthodox. We had Presbyterians. We had General Reformed. We had Lutherans. We had Baptists. Oh, my. We had this collection of people and this unity. And honestly, it's been one of the great gifts uh, coming out here to minister at Old Goshenhoppen is this collective group of pastors and the fellowship we can have even though we come from a variety of faith traditions. And there really isn't arguments and there really aren't divisions. And we do talk about quite profound things. Last meeting we talked about how certain pastorates have members that now want to be called by different gender terms than the one they were born into. And so it becomes this encouraging thing, but what is that unity? What is that unity that, that unites us? Because, and the unity is, is that we're willing to admit that not one of us pastors has perfectly mastered the scriptures. That we know everything there is to know about the word of God. However, all of us, regardless of denominational leaning, are ultimately mastered by the scriptures and the one in whom they proclaim. The good gospel that it shares. We recognize that we don't need to quibble over certain matters of head knowledge because we all embrace the same head that is Christ and his word. That kind of idea will become a cornerstone idea for the biblical description of unity. We don't surrender the word. We don't become ashamed of the gospel. We don't become ashamed of Christ. We keep our fidelity to Christ. And with those not ashamed to be found in Christ, we share a great unity with. So our passage today will help explain why troubles, first, are not an excuse to avoid pursuing unity. Second, this passage will help tell us the four qualities that help complement our Christian unity. And then third, we'll learn how the key to unity is that God is the driver of it. So let us begin first with the fact that we never have an excuse to forsake unity. Now, as we've remembered several times over this series, Paul's in prison as he writes this letter. And Paul's not in prison for driving a chariot while under the influence 
He's not in prison for robbing a bank, not for physically assaulting another individual. Why is he arrested in this letter of ours? He's arrested for a thought crime. Those old enough to remember the blight of communism of the Cold War, don't forget Karl Marx isn't the inventor of governments that arrest people for thought crimes. History goes back much further than that. It doesn't require communism or fascism in order to begin arresting people for thought crimes. Paul had the audacity to believe that a Jewish carpenter who died on the cross was actually God, and this encounter so changed Paul and how he would act, both in private and in the public square, that through a series of events that Paul's already made clear in this letter, that God ordained, he's now arrested. Which means that Paul's day was a day of conflict. It was a time period of great tension and a time period of great hostility towards specifically Christianity. Paul's not writing these things from some catbird seat, after, but he's writing these things after having been arrested for a thought crime that Rome did not like within its republic. Paul, in the modern vernacular, is writing this as an oppressed person. Now, we live in a modern world that likes to judge people's oppression. There are even universities and organizations that have built formulas in order to grade out people's oppression scale and try to divvy out based on oppression. So as my brother, who's here in uh, worship, we like to joke, we are like the F-minus of all F-minuses on the oppression scale. We grew up spoiled brats in La Jolla. We are both heterosexual men. We're white. We're both happily married. We both have four lovely kids. You know, we both have jobs where we proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ and the wisdom and principles that he lived and upheld. Don't you know that's the cultural dominant practice? We're F-minuses. But Paul here, Paul here, he's, boy... He's got a lot on the oppression scale that he can quickly hit to. He's a man who has been beaten many times for the gospel. He's been shipwrecked. He's been imprisoned. He's been whipped. He's been criticized. He's been now arrested for thought crimes. He's from a second-class ethnic group in the empire. Paul is grading out very high in the ancient world calculus as someone who is oppressed. And we live in a world that is getting more and more comfortable with saying, oh, you find yourself in a situation like that, feeling oppressed? You don't need unity then. You don't need to turn the other cheek then. You need to rebel. You need to lash out. You need to have a tantrum. Then they'll notice. Then they'll see. And yet Paul doesn't have that kind of calculus here. We Christians can never embrace such a calculation either. Paul's equation is one that is willing to endure suffering in order to seek unity. Paul, from his persecuted position in Rome, declares in verse 1 of our passage, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And that word worthy there in your ESV translation, that comes from the Greek word akios, which is which at the root of it, the root word of that, means, in the Greek, weighty. So another way to translate what Paul is trying to get at at the beginning here, in chapter 4, is, in the weighty moments of life, 
in the one where there are the ones that there are real challenges, don't forget how you've been called to live. There is no hall pass where we get to ignore the kinds of things we've been called to, to have and to be guided by in the Christian life. The world might give hall passes for certain kinds of lifestyles and decisions. The world might want you to focus on your victimhood and make that the central guiding post of your identity. Or if you're like me, your privilege. I mean, I get to live in a parsonage rent-free, even though my kids don't turn off the lights and the electric bill is paid. I am spoiled. Paul's saying, ignore that stuff. We are to live a life that weighs the awesome, unifying call of Jesus Christ that crosses all cultures and all strata of society centered upon a Jewish carpenter who, in believing in him, it was a terrible thought crime to many others. We have to have Jesus be the heavy rock to stabilize ourselves upon. And so returning to those elders who will meet here on Thursday, and I'm sure yet again we'll have a lovely fellowship, we can have that unity because one after the other, they understand and appreciate the weightiness of Christ, the heavy significance of Christ. It's their grounding principle. You know, one of the great joys, of course, of being a pastor is when someone foolishly thinks, I should join this church. That's, that's a, probably a mistake, but I love hearing it. It's exciting. You know, one of my other great joys, though, is when I get to say, hey, if, if this doesn't suit you, why not this one down the road or that one down the road? Because there are a lot of great churches in which to hear Christ proclaimed. Now, Christians are not to be called cultish, but to be unified in unity with all those who Christ is a weighty thing for. And then in verse 2, we discover the ingredients that help complement a weighty faith in our God. And the ingredients are humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. Now, humility was not a virtue in the Roman world. Humility was what they taught slaves. They wanted their slaves to be neither seen nor heard. The Roman world hated that. And I don't think that's so out of place in our world either. We're the world of the social media account. I am sure if I did a case study, I could post for the next week a picture of every meal I'm about to consume on Facebook. And what would happen? You'd get a few likes, right? It would be the most pointless kind of practice. I, I've done it before if you've done it too. I'm not trying to make you feel embarrassed about it. But, but it would be this pointless practice of showing what I'm about to digest. And I post it on Facebook, and I bet you I could get likes. What does that culture build up? Oh, like me, like me, please like me. It's not really a culture of humility. It's a culture of pride. And maybe you're sitting there going, well, that's why I'm not on Facebook. Well, that's pride too sometimes. And even that can be a problem. Hey, you thought you're out of it, right? You don't have a Facebook account. You've left Zuckerberg, right? Yeah, you still have, in your own social circles, we have these things that we like to lift up about ourselves. That's not the type of ingredient that God wants for us. And do you know how we can celebrate that? It's by remembering Jesus, the weightiness of how Jesus came 
He came in humility. 33 years in a humble estate where the, the more power... And those 33 years that he came in humility were more powerful than any life that's ever been lived. Next is gentleness. Now, God wasn't required to be gentle with us. He had all power to judge, to crush, to stamp out all those who were opposed to him, which we once were before the gift of the Holy Spirit that saved us. And yet, Jesus, our God, has been gentle with us. Now, and now, if we look at him, we know how to be gentle with others. God was gentle with me in placing the punishment I deserved upon himself. So I no longer needed to feel his wrath or to be worried about his wrath as, as Rob was teaching in Sunday school. And so likewise, well, there are times where my fallen man, my sinful flesh wants to, and sadly often succumbs to being angry or being uh, upset or having an ugly tongue. I need to remember the weighty reality that my Savior has been gentle with me. I need to carry that weightier matter into my life so I am more gentle with others. Well, how badly I need that. Being gentle as Christ is gentle. Gentleness has the power to change things. The third complement to building unity in this world is patience. The ability to wait on people to change. Even a fool knows a baby will be in a diaper for a couple of years. It's going to take time for a baby to be potty trained. And yet, how often do, have we failed to preserve Christian unity with not being able to wait for people to mature and to grow in their faith? In an instantaneous age where we're not made to wait for many things anymore, this is another area where our culture is going to struggle. Outside these walls, we want everything faster. And some of you, even inside these walls, we want everything faster, myself included. Speed rules the day. And yet my Lord and Savior, for me, I, I can just profess, he waited 19 years for me. And then as the Holy Spirit blessed me with repentance, I've now lived more than half my life as a believer now, approaching 40. He still waits on me with so many sins that I still struggle with. And he waits for you too. He doesn't want to give up on me. He doesn't want to give up on you. And so we both are not to give up on others. And they make us wait. One of the great stories of this, of course, is St. Monica. 30 years she waited for her son. Her son, in one sense, was one of the great arguers against Christianity, rhetorically, until finally God answered this mother's long wait and made Augustine outside the apostles truly the greatest theological mind, probably of church history. Our God is patient, and we too need to be patient. Lastly, we need to be bearing with one another in love, and that seems like patient again. But actually, the Greek word here is akeno, and it only appears in one way in the New Testament. It appears four times, I believe, through Paul's letters. And it means to tolerate someone who is difficult and foolish. By the way, this is just one of these things that made me chuckle this week because this is an apostolic writing breathed out through the Holy Spirit and the Apostle Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, just told every Christian that at all times will be forced at, will be forced at times to strive for unity with someone we find a fool. 
I mean, if we really want to get uncomfortable for a moment, I could ask you to picture someone who you do believe is a Christian that you find a fool. Where, you know, and some of you don't even need to close your eyes to do that. You can just look up here at the pulpit because I'm the fool you think of. And that's okay. But oh, I digress. The apostle says, you want unity in the church? You're going to be ha- have to be able to find someone at times utterly annoying and yet still strive to love them because of the weighty reality of who our God is to you. And just think about Jesus for a moment. Jesus had this struggle. He had to have had this struggle. Because what did his disciples do throughout their lives? His life, his ministry. They say the wrong thing at the wrong time, constantly. And Jesus is, again, gentle with them. He's humble with them. He's patient with them. He does not cast them off. He waits upon them. He's a good God. And so these are the ingredients that the Holy Spirit uses in order to create unity in churches. And likewise, if we reverse the ingredients, the Holy Spirit is not going to desire to do much with that. If we are prideful, if we are brash and rude, if we are impatient and always quick to anger, if we have zero tolerance anytime someone is foolish, that's not what the Holy Spirit's going to use. So now we have the four ingredients that help create unity. And then the Apostle Paul begins to center all of this upon God. Which means that the goal isn't unity just for unity's sake. Or peace for peace's sake. The goal for unity is for the sake of God wanting unity in the midst of believers of him. We are called to a God-centered, spirit-driven unity. And not to some general universal idea or but centered on the God of Scripture. Remember, this is the same Paul who reminds the pastors of Ephesus before he leaves in Acts chapter 12, verse 30, that people will try to come along and get to you to distort the truth about God and watch over such distortions and do not tolerate it. A unity that distorts the weightier matters of the gospel in Christ cannot be tolerated by us. And so in the final three verses of our passage today, we see the Trinity. Actually, in each verse, you'll see a member of the Trinity. Verse 4, the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, Jesus. Verse 6, the Father. Our one God, three persons as a grounding basis for our unity. Actually, when we read creeds like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, uh, this chapter was, is echoed in those texts. It is central to their message. And Paul will give in this triune unity that we are to embrace seven things that we as believers all are to find unity on. Seven, of course, being a number of fullness or complete. Paul is doing amazing things with numbers in this moment. We have one God seen in three persons, and when he gives us these seven linking points for our unity, common unity as Christians. The first is the true church of God is one body. What the early church often called Catholic. There is this ancient creed that the church subscribes to. If you've never read it, I suggest you do so. The Athanasius Creed. And the early church was defining who was a part of the universal church. What was Catholicity? And we subscribe to that here at this church. And really, evangelical Protestants subscribe to that creed. We often hear that word Catholic, and we think... 
because of the Reformation, oh, that's a term for the church down the road. You know, the one that listens to the guy with the tall hat in Rome. But that's not actually the term. The idea, the concept is that we have a shared unity centered around the triune God. That's why the true church is one body. It's not Roman Catholic, it's not Lutheran, it's not Presbyterian, it's not Baptist, it's not Pentecostal, it's not Reformed. But it's found within such places with whom the Holy Spirit has saved through his power. There was a pastor who used to talk about the true church this way, and I love this image. He said, the church is in Christ like Eve was in Adam. Which sounds confusing at first, but the point is, through Christ's sacrificial laying down and allowing for a great sleep of death to be cast upon him for three days in the grave, a part of Christ was removed, though never separated from him. His righteousness was offered for our sake, and his righteousness began building us, so that through Christ's righteousness, we once dead sinners could be connected to him as his bride. So what is then the dividing part of who is a part of the body and who is not a part of the body? It's those who Christ has offered more than just a rib for, which Adam did. It's those in whom Christ has offered his very being for. The true church is the true body of the faithful, who Christ, through the power of the Spirit and in the approval of the Father, has called in love to be a part of his new Eve, his new bride. That's No denomination controls that. The second one Paul lists is the Spirit. How the word Spirit works here is really talking about the exclusivity of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. God is writing to an audience who the vast majority are closer to something of Hindu, were were once like Hindus. They worshipped everything and anything. However, when we talk about the Holy Spirit as one Spirit, it's that He's the one who sets us in motion to love Christ and be centered upon Christ in our worship and love. He allows the words of Scripture that testify of Christ to inspire us and to set our hearts aflame. So unity is to be driven and sought after, not with everyone who claims to be spiritual, but those who are claimed by the Holy Spirit. The third one we have is one hope. And hope is ultimately in the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. Paul elsewhere in his writings will say, if Christ did not raise from the dead, our hope is in vain. Our hope is centered upon the fact that the saving power of the Holy Spirit brought Jesus back from the dead. Forms of belief that do not believe in the hope of Easter morning are not worthy of our unity. The fourth element of Christian unity is found in our one Lord. The Lord in the Old Testament was the word Yahweh. A name considered so holy in Jewish culture, still to this day, many will never say it or refuse to say it. Yet here was this Jew Paul in Ephesians who has no problem saying the name of the Lord because no longer is that name hidden from us. Because the true Lord and King is Jesus and he has been fully revealed. We now as members united in the power of the Spirit can boldly declare Christ is Lord. Christ is Yahweh. Christ is King. That is what unifies us, the larger body. The fifth thing that we find in unity is our one faith. And Paul's already described this a chapter ago in chapter 3, verse 12. Our faith is that through Jesus we can approach God with freedom and confidence. That we have an actual access to him and we have no reason to fear. 
systems of works, man-based work salvation never can attain that. You must have faith alone in the one who saves. It's reasons like this that reformers like Luther and Calvin, well, even though in their lifetime they honestly desired unity with the broader Western church, eventually they had to go forward with the Reformation itself. Because Paul defines what faith is. And faith is, is to be in what Christ has accomplished for us, a full satisfaction of our sins so that we can go into our Father's sight. The sixth thing we have is baptism. And in American Christianity, this is a hobby horse of ours. We like to focus on mode or specific practice of baptism while ignoring the fact that we all ultimately agree the baptism that truly saves, that truly unites, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When we make this about how we do water baptism, which is a sign and seal of the thing signified, rather than how God blesses us with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we have it backwards. The only baptism that ultimately saves is the Holy Spirit coming upon us and giving our hearts of stone a heart of flesh. Lastly, what unites the true body in unity is our one God, which I think because the fact that Paul here is talking about the Trinity, he wants you to remember one God, three persons. But also he goes on to declare and talk more about our Father, who is over all things, who is through all things and in all things. So one God means one God. There's an exclusivity to Christianity. It's a specific God who has revealed himself. But then, Paul's point about the Father here is that the Father has command over everything. And everything means everything. God is not at the mercy of anyone or anything. Even if you're locked away in prison for a thought crime, as Paul is, he's in command. Even if you're frustrated with the state of the world, he is in command. Even if you're angry with a fellow foolish believer, he is in command. And in his command, he is calling to us to have unity with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He is calling us to love boldly and wisely with humility and grace. To see his larger unifying work that isn't found in any one specific pulpit or chair in the world, but is universal and through the ages and will go on through eternity. It's been graciously given to us by God, this unity. And it's a unifying message in a divisive time. We have a God in whom we can hold on to in unity with others, because he was first united in saving us, those whom he was patient with and humbled himself for. What a wonderful reason we have to find peace in this moment of life we find ourselves in, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we look out at the world, we look out at news, we look out at so many things that cause division, and it also, Lord, sweeps us into it, where we sometimes get captured and caught up in that division. Help us to strive for unity within the larger universal church, to embrace our brothers and sisters, to give them, um, to love them well in this moment, in moments of hostility and hardship, in order that we might better reflect the God who was oh so gracious with us, even though we did not deserve such love. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.